Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth. And we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your surrogate leader, bound in your search for the truth. And if you know where that's from, you are a classic rock trivia master. And I tip my hat in your general direction. I've been doing this for almost 30 years. Uh, Really love this business. Uh, Can't imagine doing anything else. But and have always enjoyed uh, sharing of war stories, tips, tricks. Hey, I did this and this worked. Hey, I did this and it didn't work with other reps. And I am so excited about bringing that content to you from all kinds of sources. We're going to be talking with uh, other reps from all kinds of different spaces, from uh, cardiac to vascular to spine, trauma, uh, all across the medical device spectrum. And we've got interviews with uh, surgeons, admin people, with uh, OR directors, patent attorneys, accountants. I just finished a great interview with an accountant, and it's going to knock your socks off. He is going to show you how to put some money in your pocket as a 1099. So I'm looking forward to that. So hold on. There's some really good stuff coming your way. And at the end of the day, if you get better at your job, uh, you get better in medical device, then the staff is better served, the HCP is better served, and ultimately the patient is better served by all of us operating at peak efficiency, right? So let's begin this maiden voyage of the HMS Device Nation with an interview. Uh, One surgeon I have particularly enjoyed on LinkedIn is Dr. Vinod Dasa. Uh, He asks all the right questions. He's quite the uh, future thinker, and I know you're going to get as much out of this as I did talking to this gentleman. So uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Vinod Dasa. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Um, we could spend hours just talking about uh, future think and where we are right now in, in, uh, in the world of orthopedics, but I'd like to take just a, a step back. I'd love to hear uh, about your experience with ISK and the fellowship you did there and, and what drew you to that. Uh, I, I'd just like to hear your story. Yeah, so... You know, my journey started uh, in med school, um, and so I was in a uh, combined seven-year program with Albany Med and Union College, then did residency in Buffalo, and in Buffalo, one of my mentors was Dr. Ken Krakow, and I think most of the reps are kind of the more senior uh, folks in the implant industry probably have met him or know of him, uh, phenomenal surgeon, phenomenal thinker, and he really installed, uh, instilled in us uh, as residents kind of a a way of thinking that that I really appreciated. And and that general concept was, you know, don't be a jack of all trades, be a master of a few things and be really good at it. And if you think conceptually in in most of our lives, the areas where we see success and we see high quality work is folks that really hone in on a a few things and they're really good at those things, whether it's a painter, electrician, or, or a mechanic or whatever. Um, and it's the ones that dabble across a bunch of things. Uh, you don't get to that level of quality and, and expertise, uh, and, and, and we struggle uh, with that. And so he instilled that kind of thinking in me uh, in residency, and I really appreciate uh, uh, learning from him. And that's what kind of got me drawn into the Insol Scott Kelly Fellowship, because it allowed us to really focus in on a very discrete, finite area of orthopedics and healthcare. So instead of trying to be the jack of all trades and, and, and trying to do everything and, and try to be everything for everybody, uh, that fellowship really allowed me to focus in on an area that, that I enjoyed uh, doing. And, you know, the, the area of the knee, uh, I think, is, is ripe for innovation. You see a lot of the innovations in this space within the world of orthopedics, uh, you know, somewhat to a certain extent uh, arise in the knee. If you look at the disease burden, if you look at the opportunities, 
you know, arthroplasty uh, is one of kind of the, the leading uh, specialties, I think, in orthopedics in terms of uh, engineering and implant design and, and our experience and, uh, and expertise in that space. And the knee, for me at least, was, was a nice area because it, it bridged sports medicine uh, with arthroplasty. Uh, in an anatomic area uh, that was ripe uh, for uh, research uh, and for improvements. And so, you know, kind of if you, if you take all of those factors together, uh, for me at least, you know, the ISK Fellowship was probably uh, the perfect place. And, you know, it was in Manhattan, and we trained with some of the, you know, four uh, leading thinkers, you know, Gil Scuderi and Fred Kushner and Norm Scott and uh, Dr. Kelly and, you know, uh, tremendous uh, 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 experience and, and skill set uh, that I had access to. Uh, and so for all those reasons, that ISK fellowship uh, was really uh, transformative for me and, and very impactful. Uh, that's great stuff. I, I live with regret to this day. Uh, Dr. Insall was a real um, a thought leader for me when I was learning about knee replacement and uh, his textbook, Surgery of the Knee, was just very profound for me kind of learning what was going on in his head on a, a lot of balancing issues and uh, treating it as a soft tissue operation. And uh, I was just young and crazy enough. I, I asked a, a distributor up in New York, could I come in and watch the man operate? And he got me in and I'm standing there at the scrub sink with Dr. Insall and I had his surgical technique with me and I was going to get him to sign it. But I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be so groupy, <laughs> groupy weird. Uh, so I didn't do it, but, um, in the room with him on that case was Gil Scuderi. And I thought this is just as a rep, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven being in the room with those two. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and I'll tell you, you know, the, the folks associated with that fellowship and that practice, you know, it, it was just a, a very powerful, uh, very powerful place. So you're in Louisiana now and, uh, tell me, tell me what you're doing these days. What's, uh, What's, what's your practice yeah. mostly like? So, what do you love to do? So I've got a, a lot of hats. Um, you know, we came down to Louisiana post-Katrina back in 2007. It was a really unique opportunity to help rebuild uh, an orthopedic department uh, coming right out of training. And so, you know, I kind of jumped on that opportunity. Uh, and it's been uh, extremely worthwhile to help uh, this area uh, of the country kind of get back on its feet uh, and help the department uh, get back. And so uh, it's been really satisfying and, and really fulfilling. So now, you know, uh, over the last 10, 12 years, um, you know, I've, I've kind of expanded uh, what I do aside from just pure clinical work. I'm now the uh, vice chairman uh, of the Department of Orthopedics at LSU. Uh, I also uh, help manage and, and run uh, some of the uh, leadership uh, committees, uh, both at the uh, Oshner Hospital uh, that we work at, as well as uh, within the LSU Med School and Health Sciences Center. Um, I'm the director of research uh, for our department. So over the last five, six years with our chairman, Dr. Zura, have really invested a lot of time, energy, and resources to expand uh, our research infrastructure, especially after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and our focus right now is really zoning in on health disparities. And so looking at the inequities in healthcare, looking at differences in outcomes that we see by race, gender, socioeconomic status, uh, all the important factors around social determinants of health that we now are starting to understand significantly impact our patients in a way that I don't think we've really appreciated uh, in healthcare in general, but even less so uh, within the world of orthopedics. And that has framed up kind of how uh, I'm, I'm thinking moving forward because as we move into the areas of population health, understanding uh, why patients perform the way they perform uh, after surgery or, or after various treatments um, and all the context around that, you know, uh, can they get to the physical therapy office? Can they get the antibiotics they need? Why are they uh, struggling? Uh, what are, what are the factors? Cause if it's the same surgeon, same hospital, same nurses, same everything, same implants, you know, why do we see this variation in different groups of uh, patients? And then as healthcare moves from this kind of fee for service world where we didn't really care I mean, we cared, but we didn't uh, in terms of how patients did into this new value-based world, population health world, where how patients do and is, is extremely important and impacts us financially. Uh, then we have to understand the why, the why behind it uh, to improve. 
And so there's very little uh, data, there's very little information, very little research in this space. Uh, and fortunately at LSU, I've got the, uh, I've got the support uh, from Dr. Zura and from the dean and everyone else to really start doing a deeper dive into this space uh, because it, it's needed. And you know, if we expect to move the needle uh, in this value-based world and population health world, really need to understand as, as deep as we can why patients do the way they do from their perspective. Um, and so we're moving, we're moving that uh, in a research perspective. And then uh, working closely with Oshner um, to really understand how we can improve healthcare, in, in, at least in my little sliver of the world, uh, and, and drive value and, and drive a more sustainable, uh, accessible system. I got to ask you this question only because uh, I was reading an article recently just about how expectations, and it's an, it's an older article, but it was about how uh, expectations can drive patient satisfaction uh, postoperatively. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, with the, do you see anything generationally that, uh, that's different in terms of expectations? Um, do you think that the younger uh, demographic today uh, is expecting more from these procedures and, and driving that percentage that's uh, not completely satisfied? Is it generational or is it a bunch of other things that really are impossible to, to digest into one, one point? No, it's a, it's a great question. And so, you know, if you look at where arthroplasty has evolved, right? And so when I was a resident, if we did a total joint replacement on someone who is 50, 55 years old, I mean, there was a food fight. People were yelling at each other in an indications conference <laughs> saying, you're nuts. You shouldn't be doing this. This is crazy, right? right. For me now to do a to total knee in someone who's 52, it's nothing. No one even bats an eye. That's true. Right? So, if you, you know, so if you look, then that's only been, what, over the last 15, 20 years. Right. And so, so to your point, the expectation that patients have to live with whatever disease process they have going on. Uh, you know, and again, back then, right, we were prescribing opiates like it was candy. So here, just take your opiates and, and you're going to be fine. So now, obviously, as, as, as the opiate uh, issue has, has really surfaced over the last five, six years, um, our technology has improved, our techniques have improved, our comfort level in terms of survivorship, what to expect, how to mitigate infections and stiffness and this, that, and the other. I think there's a number of factors that we've improved on. Uh, you know, we're now doing opiate-free, outpatient joint replacement. So what we've done, is think, I think, is... We've, we've turned the surgery from this kind of very uh, old person, low demand, uh, very uh, uh, elite uh, patient qualification surgery to a certain extent, if you will, uh, to this kind of more uh, uh, available uh, democratized type surgery. And so I think it's a, it's a combination of two things. Number one, it's our ability now and willingness to, to provide that surgery uh, to more active, younger patients because of what we've learned and what we've accomplished. And because of that, then patient expectations shift as well. And so if you're 55 years old, it's not, I don't, I don't just pop uh, uh, Tylenol and opiates now and just live with it. It's I can do something about it because now we're willing to do it and we've got the technology innovations to get them there too. So I think it's a, it's a number of factors uh, that, that play into this uh, and why we're doing it in younger patients. Now, your question about satisfaction is a tough one. Uh, I think a certain uh, a component of that is patient expectation. Um, if, especially in the younger patients that have uh, arguably uh, a higher or more active lifestyle, their expectations from the surgery are very different than someone who's 80 years old and, and just plays bingo. That's true. And so, you know, how do, we, how do we meet those expectations? And part of the challenge, and this is what I found in, in my younger patients, is I can sit there and tell them, you know, till I'm blue in the face, that, you know, to a certain extent, this is not going to meet all your expectations because the, the implants and the surgery are just not there yet. Um, they'll, they'll say, yes, 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 I understand. And then six months from surgery where, you know, it's still not, you know, they all, I think especially younger ones feel like I'm going to, I'm supposed to give them a knee that was what they had when they were 20 years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're just technologically not there. And, I, and as much as you want to explain it to them, they still don't get it. And then they come to that realization after surgery. So, you know, this, the, the question about satisfaction is, is complex because there's also a cultural component to it too, right? So if you're someone that has to squat and kneel and pray five times a day, your expectation from a knee replacement is very different than someone that sits in a pew, right? Yeah, um, and so, you know, and if you're athletic versus not, if you're sitting at a desk versus climbing ladders on a construction site, you know, that's why, you know, you, you see this difference 
I think the older population, sorry, younger population, because they, they, their uh, use of their body, if you will, is much broad and, and much more engaged in, in kind of the normal economy versus someone who's retired and, and kind of has a very limited uh, lifestyle. So when I first started this job, I mean, the internet wasn't even really a thing yet. Uh, I'm just curious with the, uh, the voluminous information out there uh, over the years, it's just gotten a, a bigger and bigger patients coming into your office, having all this information available online. Is that, has that helped the process or has it hindered it in any way? I, I'm just curious. Yeah. So it's interesting in Manhattan, when I was doing my fellowship, I mean, we were seeing patients for the fifth opinion for a degenerative meniscus tear. And oh. they came in with a stack of internet printouts, you know, <laughs> and so right. I'm sitting there as a fellow saying, Oh my God, this is crazy. You know? And then I moved down to the Gulf South and you know, the culture down here is, Hey doc, you know, whatever you think is best, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow your lead. And then I've seen everything in between. Um, and so I think the internet has, has to, for a certain patient demographic uh, uh, has really brought transparency. Uh, they come with uh, uh, questions that I think are extremely valid. I think, you know, many physicians, I'm the boss and don't annoy, just do what I say, you know, right. um, because I know what's best. Um, I think those days are starting to get numbered. And, uh, you know, you have to start understanding that patients have anxiety and fears. And, you know, it's our job to really educate them to the extent that we can but also balance that with the demands of a, a busy office, right? And I can't sit there necessarily for two hours explaining A to Z on every little thing. And so I think, you know, for me at least, uh, there are times where I struggle, uh, you know, balancing patient education, patient engagement, you know, them asking questions because they read up and, and did so much research on the internet that's now available to them where in the past it wasn't with, you know, I've got to run a practice and we've got to, you know, we've got throughput and efficiencies that we need to pay attention to. All right. Good stuff. You said the word opiate free and I, I'd love to hear more about this. I'm seeing it more on uh, LinkedIn and, and hearing about it. I, I remember the first time I ever saw Iovera, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, just tell me what opiate free, you know, how many, how many pieces is this puzzle? Is, is it in your mind? and what have been your um, experiences with it so far? Yeah, so, you know, when we talk about opiate-free or opiate-sparing or reducing surgery, remember that it, it's a complex thing, right? And most complicated uh, uh, problems are rarely gonna be solved with a single bullet, with a silver bullet, with a singular sure. solution. It's, it's gonna require an ecosystem of, of solutions or a bunch of different things that need to come together to solve that complex issue. So taking opiates after surgery is not just gonna be solved by one thing or one person. And so it, it boils down to number one, uh, again, centering on the patient, patient education and patient expectation. So if, if they think this is gonna be the most painful, miserable surgery on the planet, then they're going into surgery uh, with the expectation that they're going to be taking popping, uh, you know, pain pills like candy. Right. And so it's, it's educating the patients about, you know, what are the alternatives or what are the options uh, for managing your pain, whether it's uh, ice or cold or uh, Tylenol or Motrin or Diclofenac, you know, so many things that are out there uh, that can help mitigate that pain. So that's step one, I think is, is really engaging the patient and teaching them, about you know how best they can control their pain and under and the patient understanding kind of their pain threshold. You know, you, we've seen patients that you know they they scream and cry from one little uh, knee injection, right? And I've got other patients that are stoic and you know farmers that you know you could drop a, a 50 pound weight on their foot and they wouldn't flinch. That's true. Um, so you know, so you've got a huge spectrum of, of patients and you got to uh, allow the patients really understand who they are and what their expectations are. Um, you know, then it's our uh, multimodal uh, anesthesia and analgesia program that most of the arthroplasty uh, programs in the country have. Preoperatively, you know, uh, uh, all the uh, uh, anti-inflammatories and Tylenol and, and neuromodulator uh, medi medi medications. Then we talk about the actual uh, perioperative anesthesia, you know, uh, going from general anesthesia back in the day with a PCA pump. Uh, where patients were staying in the hospital for two weeks and, and hitting the button like, you know, like crazy, uh, shifting down to neuraxial and regional anesthesia. And I think that's where we turned the corner uh, was when we realized the, the power of the femoral nerve block. And when we started doing that, what happened? We started seeing length of stay 
drop like a, like a ton of bricks. Um, you know, but we were having issues, right? Uh, patients had to have knee immobilizers because they were falling from, the, uh, from shutting down the quads. Uh, and then what happened? We now realized that the femoral nerve was extremely, extremely important in managing postoperative pain. And that was really the, the pain uh, uh, driver uh, was whatever was happening at the terminal branches of the femoral nerve is what was really contributing to this, right? Because when we shut the femoral nerve down, 90% of the patient's pain went away. And we're seeing these amazing results. Uh, the, you know, really, they only had pain in the back of the 10% of it. But the femoral nerve, what we started realizing was driving most of this, not tibial-based nerves that, that innervate the bone around the knee, but really it was the femoral nerve, which then tells you, like to your point earlier, this is a soft tissue surgery, right? And the, and the pain generator around the knee is really coming from soft tissues, which are innervated by the femoral nerve. And then what do you see now? We've migrated distally uh, from the groin now to adductor blocks and, and working around the knee. And so then what are the solutions and, and what are the innovations that we can deploy as we learn more and, and start drifting closer and closer to uh, where the pain uh, is happening, right? And so um, then uh, and started incorporating uh, uh, Iovera, so freezing some of the nerves uh, around the knee. And just for your audience, I do have conflicts of interest here, uh, and I do work uh, with Pacera, uh, uh in this space. Um, so we started uh, using Iovera back in 2013, uh, realized that it had a huge impact on our post-operative uh, patients because I was seeing significant benefit on the OA side, but as the nerves were regrowing, uh, the pain was coming back. And so on the OA chronic pain side, uh, it was tremendous, but uh, not long lasting, uh, that relief that, that we would hope for. But the six, eight week, 10 week relief that we're seeing uh, in the bone on bone patients uh, on the OA side, I, I finally figured out we potentially could leverage that on the surgical side. And so we started uh, using it, and then we published a paper in 2016 showing using that we dropped narcotic use by about 50%. Then um, uh, periarticular uh, injections came out, and the long-acting liposomal bupivacaine, uh, we started using that uh, off-label for the adductor canal, uh, and then on-label for IPAC block. And then I started realizing and we started seeing, holy cow, we dropped narcotic use by about 50%, but patients were still taking narcotics. Then all of a sudden, when we, when we started layering on all these innovations, about a third of my patients now are completely opiate-free out of the gate when they leave the uh, recovery room. And wow. so, you know, so it's, it's been pretty tremendous uh, to see, you know, when I was a resident and a med student, patients getting general anesthesia, PCA pump, I was rounding on them for 10 days straight to all of a sudden now, you know, patients are going home within hours only taking Tylenol for their entire recovery. So the, you know, what we've seen, the innovation and the progress we've seen these last 15, 20 years has just been absolutely incredible. And I think that's, you know, that's some of the awesome stuff about healthcare and medicine and, and being in the United States and, and participating in this is, is to see, you know, these very smart scientists and companies and engineers uh, really pushing the envelope and, and pushing us forward. Um, and, and to be part of that is, is, is a true blessing. No doubt. I, uh, I think you'd probably agree that a lot of that innovation on the, uh, the pain space has opened the door yeah. for CMS with the uh, ambulatory surgery rulings. That's right. And, you know, uh, and so what you're alluding to is the fact that the government just simply can't afford to maintain the current path that we're on. Right? We, just, we just can't afford it. it. It's not sustainable. So whether you're an implant company, drug company, hospital, surgeon, nurse, therapist, whatever it is, the, I think everyone will acknowledge that it's not sustainable. So then the question then is, if there's a fixed pie and a fixed amount of money, you know, somebody's lunch is going to be eaten. And so you know, that's just the way it is. This is you know, it, it's a business. And whether or not we want to admit it, that, that's, you know, the pie is only so big. And so what CMS is saying now, Listen, you know, to a certain extent, where it's it, it's a uh, you know it's a, it's our own fault for improving quality so much that CMS is now saying, hey, you know, these surgeries uh, shouldn't be costing nearly as much as they used to because look at this. I mean, they're going home the same day, patients are doing well, and you know they're they're pain free, and you know, so why? What's the justification that we have to keep paying uh, what we were paying ten years ago? Uh, because you guys improved. So to a certain extent, you're getting penalized for improving. Right. And other, any other industry, the better you do, theoretically, the, the more you make or the better things become. But in healthcare, it's almost the exact opposite. The better you do, the less you make. So, you know, it, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, 
But, you know, at the same time, healthcare is changing and the way we're getting reimbursed from this fee-for-service model to become this value-based risk model is what's going to allow those folks that improve quality and move the needle and can do it more cost-effectively, but they're going to get a better, bigger piece of that pie. And the ones that don't do it well, that do cost more, are going to get a smaller piece of the pie. And so it's, you're, you're starting to see that evolve. It's in its infancy. Uh, we, want to sh- we have to be careful, though, right? Because it, how do we define quality? From whose perspective do we define quality? How do we define success? Because, you know, again, looping back to my interest in health disparities, as we start moving down this value-based road, if certain patients don't do well, we have to start figuring out why and not penalize uh, patients or the providers for taking care of high-risk patients and cherry-picking or lemon-dropping patients uh, because of this value-based uh, transition. And so it's a delicate balance. There's a lot of dynamics coming into play. I mean, literally, as we speak today, next week, next month, of, you know, how do we bring all these factors in? And the, part of the problem is, is we don't have any data, research, or evidence to help guide us, right? And so we're trying to now create that. Um, but we still have a long way to go. So it's going to be a rough road. Um, you know, the pie is shrinking and everyone's trying to figure out where, where they fit in this new system. Um, but, you know, it, it's moving. And, and everyone has said, and you hear it on the news and, and you read it every day, that everyone's getting frustrated and upset with the way the system is. And so if you fail to acknowledge that, whether you're an implant company, a rep, a distributor, a hospital, a surgeon, whoever, if you fail to acknowledge that the current system is broken and not working and not figuring out how you continue to bring value and are part of the solution, not part of the problem, uh, you're going to get left behind. I agree. I was thinking this morning, uh, a lot of people see what's going on and just uh, think doom and gloom across the board. Uh, I know people on my side of the aisle can look at some of these changes and be a little rattled by some of it. But uh, I think at the same time, it's, it's providing just incredible opportunities to uh, provide some value uh, to this new process. Um, one of the things that I saw uh, on LinkedIn that you were presenting, and, and I've, I've heard reps go, oh, this, this is terrible, it's to replace us. And I was like, no, I don't see it that way at all. I think it actually helps us. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, Site. Yeah, so Site Medical is a startup uh, that uh, I helped co-found w- with some other folks. And, you know, I think as a rep, what you have to understand is the system is changing. Everyone has to be more efficient and try to do more with less, right? And so if you take an average uh, total joint rep, you know, they can cover what, max, two or three really busy arthroplasty surgeons, right? And there's only one direction implant price is going. So if you're completely maxed out with your two or three surgeons and every year supply chain, GPOs, what have you, are ratcheting down the implant costs, there's only one, one direction your commissions are going and, and, and you're maxed out, right? So how, I think what the reps and everyone have to understand is you have to become efficient just like any other sector. And that's what the market is showing and, and, and forcing. And it's not that we don't need reps. In fact, I think reps are extremely valuable. They're, they're hugely important in, in what we do. The question is, is how do we employ, deploy them and how do we use them more efficiently and more effectively that creates a win for everybody, right? So do you really need a rep for a standard primary total joint replacement with a surgeon and an OR that that does this day in and day out blindfolded? No, what we really need that talent and that expertise and that knowledge for are the difficult primaries for the revisions, right? Where we really need to understand compatibility and what works and bone loss and stems and, you know, all those complex decision-making processes where we need multiple brains working together to to solve these uh, challenges. And so can we get to a point where, you know, a rep isn't bogged down just covering two or three surgeons and they can now electronically, digitally with technology cover five, 10 surgeons, right? And, the, and, and also mitigate the fear that, you know, if I'm not there, someone's going to poach my surgeon, right? Because now remember the surgeons are becoming more and more aligned with the hospitals, with the facility, with the ASC they own. So they're not going to hop around between implants and all that kind of stuff like they did in the past. The, the alignments, the incentives on the physician side are changing dramatically, but those days are gone. Again, so I think the, the, the sales force, distributors, everyone have to really start understanding how the model's changing, how the system's changing, how are you going to adapt and, and really thrive in this. And, I, and, and my honest opinion is the reps that can really understand how the system is changing are going to be probably as successful, if not even more successful, 
than they are now with doing a fraction of the uh, effort. You know, my philosophy is, you know, how do you work smarter, not harder? And so really, you know, realistically in any industry we're talking to or talking about, it's, it's, it's leveraging technology innovations to, to do that. And so that's going to be the goal and expectations, I think, moving forward. And I think most people listening to this know that the current model is so archaic. I mean, if you just take a step back and look at how we do it, it just makes no sense. And so it, it just it boggles my mind in 2020 that this is how the system works. And, and, and I think everyone across the board, up and down, from payers all the way down to patients, uh, agree that you know, this, is, this is something that needs to change. But again, do it in a way that's strategic and, and helps everybody. And so again, I don't think it's a doom and gloom story. It's really, you know, how do we position the sales force to be more productive and more strategic? So you're not sitting at FedEx at 1 a.m. hoping and praying that, you know, there's a box that, that was missing out of your tote uh, showed up. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, agreed. I think for a lot of reps, uh, uh, and I like what you said about incentivizing uh, the employees, because if there's, if there's surgeon buy-in, I think a lot of them feel safer because uh, let's be honest, a lot of reps are covering every single case because of defensive purposes, right? Because there's, there's, five, there's five other reps out in the hallway that would love to have that business. And uh, they feel like if they're not in the room, however, if you flip the, the narrative and, and the HCP um, wants that technology uh, in the room, then it becomes a little easier pill for the rep to swallow knowing that he's not getting it you know it's going to lose something as a result of it absolutely and then think about it it's actually a barrier to entry for the other reps right because once they're using the technology and everyone's accustomed to using that implant and 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 you're on autopilot you think the scrub techs and the and the surgeon ever want to switch yeah no way right and remember the model the hospitals are managing the instruments there's no more lost instruments. There's no more lost inventory. It's all managed by the hospital. So you think the hospital wants to go get and acquire a whole bunch of new instruments? So this is, believe it or not, a way to lock in your account because you're, you're, you're actually being incorporated into the logistics and the workflow of the hospital, into the machine of the hospital, not just per, this peripheral thing that brings a bunch of totes in. So again, if the reps really think about this from a strategic perspective, this is exactly how you lock in your accounts. I completely agree. I, I, I talk to a lot of reps from different companies and, and we've all heard the mantra over the years. Uh, we've got to get y'all out of the OR being there all the time on these cases because we've got all these other things we want you to be showing and selling. And, and, and to me, that technology really allows that to happen uh, in a way where you can feel good that everything's going good in the case, but at the same time be, showing a foot and ankle product or uh, you know, whatever, a surgical product, making, making calls, showing, showing. Things. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's a collaborative process, right? You're, you're still involved. So our reps, for example, they're still ch- uh, logging into the portal and they're checking the inventory. They're, they're talking to our scrub techs, making sure they have everything. So it's not like you're leaving the surgeon high and dry. You're right. just not engaging in a, in a way that you, you were used to in the past. You're doing it via technology and becoming more efficient and, and more productive. So they're still an integral part of the whole process, right? Because there's going to be missing implants and there's going to be this, that, and the other. And they're going to be a, a, a valuable part of the team. It's just you don't need to be there for every waking moment. You can now be there strategically when, when it's most important. Where do you uh, put your future glasses on for a minute? Where do you see a joint replacement in 10, 15 years? Yeah, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, where the robot uh, evolution occurs. Mm-hmm. I think right now, uh, robots are very uh, interesting technology. The data around it from a pure research, scientific, evidence-based perspective is not that compelling. However, I think, you know, you'd be remiss to, to ignore it, right? I mean, technology's here. It's going to happen. Robots are the future. It's just where do they fit? And I think that will really dictate where arthroplasty moves. I think you know, if you think about implant design and instruments and all this kind of stuff, they were really, everything was designed for lowest common denominator, right? That surgeon that barely does this, we got to have all these buffers built into our uh, implant design. That's why they're so thick and, and, and what have you. But if we reduce the, the variation in our surgical technique, um, and I think the robot potentially can allow to do that, 
I think that then opens up a tremendous amount of innovation and potential down the road. So I'm going to be, uh, I'm really fascinated to see uh, where uh, robotic technology goes and um, potentially, you know, if that variation uh, decreases, you know, what we can start doing uh, intraoperatively that we couldn't have done before. As it stands right now, just, you know, uh, know, with the surgical technique uh, as archaic as it is, um, it's hard to see, but I can envision, you know, version 3.0, 5.0 of these robots and and potentially uh, what they can uh, change. Um, You know, as this transitions to the AFC, uh, I think, the, the cost of, of doing the surgery is going to be dramatically uh, reduced. Um, you know, it'll get to a point where it's almost like an ACL uh, surgery, where it's like a, it's a, it's a nothing. Uh, not, not that ACLs are nothing, but, you know, it, it's a lot more straightforward uh, and, and manageable, uh, not this daunting surgery. You're starting to see, you know, uh, knees in a box, if you will, and, you know, you're really starting to see kind of everything around arthroplasty shift in a more efficient, lean, value-driven model. And with that, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot of changes and uh, changing expectations, too. Um, let's talk about a couple things that are near and dear to the, the orthopedic world. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, uh, porous knees. They're making a comeback. I mean, I remember when they first came out, we saw it in the PCA and, and other designs. Uh, Aaron Hoffman uh, had a nice run of it with his, and now... There's been a, a resurgence of interest in this technology. I was just curious, thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, absolutely. So in my younger patients now, uh, you know, 59 and younger, it's uncemented, all porous, uh, and I use an uncemented monolithic tibial component and uh, uncemented CR femur uh, on my young patients and then uh, traditional PS cemented uh, uh, on my older patients. And, uh, you know, the, the technology, and I think part of the challenge was that the ingrowth surfaces are, uh, have really improved. And again, the innovations here are allowing us to do a lot more than, than we have in the past. Um, and, you know, kudos to the implant companies and the manufacturers for really uh, investing the time, energy, and resources to evolve that technology. Um, and, I, and I think we're, we're seeing it take off and we're seeing the dividends. Um, you know, I think these implants in younger patients are much easier to revise. Uh, you know, we're not chipping away cement and, and creating these craters and holes uh, all over the place uh, like we traditionally have done. I think it makes the revisions more straightforward. And I'm at a point now, again, with, with my implant selection, uh, where if I revise it, I'm coming back with a primary tibial uh, base plate. I don't have to necessarily put stems and augments and all kinds of sleeves uh, w- with the technology uh, that I'm using. And sure. so... And, and I think because of that, you know, it, I'm more willing to now do it, use it in younger patients and, and push the envelope uh, and, and be, you know, because we've got the survivorship data and, and the ease of revision and, and stuff like that. So I think it all goes uh, hat in hand. Um, the, I think the uncemented press fit uh, technologies really are amenable to the ASC space, right? The less cumbersome, the, the more simplified, the more streamlined the process, the better it fits in an ASC um, the fewer things you need, if you will. Uh, I think the fewer, from an industrial uh, perspective, the fewer components you have, the less points of failure, right? The less mistakes potentially, uh, you know? And so cement is a, is a big thing, you know? That's a, that's a, and you've, we've all been in there, you know? The mixing of the cement is like a very anxiety-provoking part of the case. And it's so <laughs> variable. I mean, it could be the same scrub tech, same everything, and the cement's getting harder, you know, 30 seconds faster than what you're used to. Uh, and nothing changed, right? They mixed it the right. exact same, you know, so it, it, it's fascinating. So to me, cement is like one of those uh, th- necessary evils. And so as we innovate and can get rid of it, I mean, I'm all for it. And, and I think most surgeons would be more than happy to get rid of their cement uh, if, if the technology justified it. I, I covered a case many years ago, quick story, uh, at, a, at a hospital that was not my, one of my accounts and they mixed cement. And uh, the surgeon mixed the cement, and as soon as the uh, the monomer and the powder went to liquid, he literally ran to the knee and started pouring this water into the knee uh, as quick as he could. It was just making an absolute mess. And I thought, 
I know where this anxiety is coming from. <laughs> At some point in his career, <laughs> this this set up on yeah. too quick, and he was determined that right. that was never, never going to happen to him. <laughs> right. So, you know, and that happens. You, you, you have one little experience like that, and then you hit everything with a sledgehammer, right? And so I think just removing that variable, you know, now we do these cases, and you're just like, oh, my God, the case is done. You put the implants in, it's boom, and you're closing. You're like, whoa, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I'll tell you the OR staff love unsmented cases. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. So I got to ask you, are you, uh, are you, are you, I, I know some guys that haven't crossed that threshold in their mind of, of uh, doing an uncemented patella or not. Are you, uh, are you press fitting that as well? And, or are you doing that hybrid? No. So, you know, so for me, I, on my younger patients, I really push the envelope. So it's uh, CR uncemented femur, monolithic uncemented tibia and unresurfaced patella. Um, okay. And then in the older patients, uh, it's the traditional everything cemented. Uh, other than uh, using all poly tibia versus a modular tibia. What uh, type of grade are you looking at on a patella? Uh, I mean, does it when you'll say, "Okay, we're going to resurface this," um, or I'm just going to leave it alone? No, so I don't do selective resurfacing in that sense. It's just by okay. age. So everyone, you know, 59 and younger, this is my algorithm. And then 16 older, this is, this is my algorithm. Um, and I, you know, if you look at the research, it's all over the place. There's really no good guidance one way or another. I was on the uh, CPG for the AOS uh, looking at uh, total knee arthroplasty. Uh, and that was one of the questions uh, we looked at. Um, and it's just, you know, there's no right answer. Uh, you can stare at it and try to figure out, uh, you know, if it's going to hurt them or not. And <laughs> you might as well flip a coin. So again, this is one area that's absolutely fascinating to me. How is it that we still have no clue, you know, <laughs> how to deal with patellofemoral issues and pain? I mean, after right. 40 years of total knee replacement, we are still clueless about whether we should be resurfacing patellas or not. Um, uh, we, we, we have a lot of work to do and, you know, a lot of questions still need to be answered. Yeah, I've always been amazed that, you know, you go to hear the Barron brothers talking about, uh, you know, their Oxford experience and what they will accept on the patella side and they do well. And, uh, right. and you're right. When you look at it, the, the data that's out there, um, it's, uh, you, you'd think we'd be farther along and having some absolute definitives in that space by now. Exactly. It's, 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 it's amazing that we don't. Um, who's your, uh, I got to ask you, who is your hero in, uh, in life? <laughs> um, you know, recently, you know, probably the last five, 10 years, I have to tell you, you know, I've been absolutely fascinated with Elon Musk and some of the other innovators in technology that are absolutely hell bent on disrupting established industries because they know there's a better way to do things. Right. And almost in, in a sense that we, we have to, we have no choice, but, but to do that. Um, and, and honestly, I think, that kind of thinking has really paved the way, you know, that, that kind of forward thinking and, you know, to hell with everybody, I'm going to figure this out no matter what um, is, is really, I think, extremely uh, 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 impressive. Um, and so I think that generation of thinker, whether it's Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, you know, that group of, of folks, Jeff Bezos, uh, it, those, are the, those are the folks that, that really, um, I think, are inspiring. Uh, because they, they see a problem and they will fix it, period. That is, that's just awesome. Um, I, I was thinking of that bumper sticker while you were talking. Uh, uh, the well-behaved woman rarely makes history. And seeing, <laughs> seeing these people, even Tucker, if you look back and when he challenged the, the car manufacturers, uh, yep. It's just really interesting to see each generation has uh, an Elon Musk. And uh, I, I'm starting, I, I see some of that in your LinkedIn posts that you're, you're standing up and, and saying, hey, this is orthodoxy, but let's, let's question it. Is there a better way? And this is what's coming. And if we're not ready for it by challenging some of these, uh, uh, some of these tried and true, or not tried and true, but uh, just established ways of doing things, then we're going to be left behind. I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, you know, and someone's going to disrupt. I mean, that's the way the market goes. And so if, 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 if you don't recognize that, you know, that's, then you turn into a Kodak. 
So what does the rep uh, take from that? That's uh, somebody that's thinking about getting into the device space and, uh, you know, how does some of this, this, this future stuff affect uh, their plans, their thoughts? And, and I'd really love to hear, you know, you, you've been around guys like me, girls like me, uh, your whole career. And, uh, you know, any thoughts just to, to help us do better at what we're doing and what you've seen yeah. work and what not to do? <laughs> you know, I'd love to hear that, too. So. No, absolutely. You know, and, and it, there's a generational, there's a significant generational divide right now that I'm seeing. And I kind of have, have drawn the line somewhere around 55 to 60 years old. And so if you look at the 50 and younger folks, they are embracing technology and they're interested in using technology in every which way possible, even if it doesn't make sense. And then we've got the older generation. And I know some of the older surgeons that, you know, are so, they, they, they don't even want to log into the computer, uh, let alone, you know, do anything else. Right. And so it, it, there's, a, there's this interesting divide. And so the, I'm going to break it up into two. The younger reps coming out right now are so technologically immersed, so tech savvy, so comfortable with this that I think technologies that will help them do their job, they're going to embrace and actually require um, because they're going to be expected to do a lot more with less and they're going to be a lot more comfortable you know, not necessarily being in the light, uh, OR with the laser pointer, but leveraging technology so they can be there if they need to be, right? I think it's the older generation that are struggling with the disruption because, again, you've been doing it this way for 30 years, you know, and so this is the way it's done. It's worked well, and, you know, it, it, and it's hard to let go and, and, and understand that, that the system's changing. And so for the younger generation, the, the newer uh, scrub techs, the young surgeons, the, the young reps that are coming out, I mean, there is, I mean, I think the, the opportunities are just absolutely endless. Um, you just have to understand, you know, how do you leverage uh, the changing paradigm to, to your advantage? Um, the older folks, I think, you know, it, the, the, they're going to struggle because, you know, again, you're, you're so, uh, 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 we're, we're so accustomed to doing things a certain way. And, and changing, you know, even for me is, is difficult. You know, I've been doing my media release the exact same way for the last however many years. And so, you know, to change that, you know, or, or adopting robots and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, if, if, we're, if we see this happening all around us, you know, I think you just have to take a step back and say, yeah, this just simply doesn't make sense. And take that experience, take that knowledge and, and, and leverage it to your advantage. Right. And so, you know, you, you've got a wealth of sales experience. You know exactly what the surgeons want to hear, when they want to hear it, how they want to hear it. So get out there and sell and, and, and bring those innovations to the market instead of sitting in, in, in the corner of the operating room with a laser pointer, you know, uh, doing your 15,000 total joint replacement. <laughs> right. You know, get, get out there and, and bring those things to us because I think the surgeons are going to value your input by bringing us new stuff, allowing us to stay ahead of the curve, as opposed to, you know, just helping a scrub tech pick up the mallet. I, I had an orthopedic surgeon tell me one time uh, what made a good rep in his mind. He said, uh, OCD, hardworking, and integrity was the three top things. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts or your, your run-ins with reps over the years. I mean, what, what stood out to you as uh, what made a particular rep, you know, just better than the other or just really good or? Uh, conversely. No, those are those are great. Those are great descriptions. I think uh, someone that that thinks three steps ahead, that you know can anticipate, uh, that's good. That's got great people skills mm -hmm. because you, the the reps bridge the gap right between the clinical and the operational, and the logistics. And so you 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 engage and you encounter so many people within the healthcare system. Uh, that the surgeon necessarily doesn't or, or SPD or the OR staff does because they bridge a bunch of different things. The other thing that's unique to the reps is they have such a wealth of experience in terms of best practices, right? You guys cover so many hospitals and surgeons. You see how different places do it. And yet that knowledge and experience doesn't come back in any meaningful way. Right. And so, you know, because when, when I talked to the reps, you're, you're, you, that was the best surgery they ever saw. You're the best surgeon on the planet. These are the best <laughs> implants in the world. Right. And so, right. but you know exactly how SPD should be functioning, how exactly, you know, supply chain should be working, exactly how patients should be wheeled in and wheeled out of the OR and 
cleaned and prepped and blah, 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 blah. I mean, there's so much information there and it's all tucked away and hidden and not allowing us to kind of move, move the needle. And so that's part of, you know, what I wanted to do with some of these technologies is how do we unleash that, right? And how do we allow the reps to really get out there and, and drive value as opposed to just, you know, convincing me to use a piece of metal and plastic. But, you know, so I think the, the message, I think, to, to all the folks that, that are listening is, you know, keep an open mind. Healthcare's changing. Try to understand where we need to go, you know, how to make this a more sustainable uh, endeavor. And, and how do the different stakeholders work together to really crack the nut and solve some of the complex problems and get away from this transactional relationship that we've had uh, for so long? And so how do you become a true value-added partner where we all are working collaboratively together to solve some of these complex problems? Great closing statement there, doctor. Uh, just a great conversation today. Thank you again, sir. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. A huge thanks uh, to all of y'all for hanging out with us today and listening to this interview and listening to this podcast. I really appreciate uh, all of you very much. If you want to reach me, uh, I am at devicenation at protonmail.com, and I encourage all of you to connect with uh, Dr. Vinod Dasa on LinkedIn and just check out his content, uh, inspirational stuff, uh, V-I-N-O-D-D-A-S-A. One thing I wanted to close with that he said that, that really made an impression on me, it was just instead of being fair to Midland, as they would say around here, on a lot of different things about just trying to focus on a few things and be great at it. Uh, I think that's just uh, words of wisdom. Now, if you want that for your device career, if you want to be that person later in life that people call you and want to know how to get through XYZ and, and to be that expert in your field, well, that is metaphorically an ATM machine that if you want to make that level with, of withdrawal, you're going to have to make some serious deposits. And we're going to talk about what those deposits are on a forthcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be a lot of fun putting that together. So again, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing from, uh, from all of you. Just give me feedback. Let me know what you want to see, what you want to hear. And I hope you all have a great week. I'll see you next time around. Bye-bye. Device Nation.